Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, you can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is where we are now, continuing through our series, The Gospel According to Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, it would be really helpful for you to have one in your lap, and so there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those, open it up to, I didn't check out the page, page 1 or 2 probably, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible at home and you want one, you can take that one home with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you this morning. Uh, I think I know a question that probably many of you have asked. You might have even asked it uh, this morning or recently. Uh, A question I think that we can all identify with at some point. And this is the question. What's wrong with me? Have you ever asked that question? What's wrong with me? How, How could I make that same mistake again? How could I lose my temper in that situation? Again, why do I keep feeling so depressed and sad when I'm a Christian? What about these nagging doubts that I have about God and His Word? Why do I seem to have no spiritual interest, no desire for His Word, no desire for prayer? Why did I commit that besetting sin again, the thing that I promised I would never do again? What's wrong with me? Have you ever asked that question? If not, maybe you've asked that question about those you live with. What's wrong with my husband? What's wrong with my wife? What's wrong with my son, my daughter? What's wrong with my mom? What's wrong with my dad? What's wrong with my friends? What's wrong with these people? Because of the way they sometimes act and the way maybe that they treat you. Uh, Perhaps you've asked this question, what's wrong with the world? You look at the world and you see political division, we see violence, we see this pandemic that won't go away. Sometimes looking at the world can be a very discouraging prospect, and you think to yourself, what is wrong with the world? Well, uh, these are big questions, questions that a lot of people ask. Genesis chapter 3 tells us what the problem is. Uh, This passage is so profoundly important. I mean, I'm tempted to say it's one of the most Important passages in the Bible. All the Bible is important, but man, we get a lot of insight in this chapter as to what is wrong with us and with the world. This is a chapter that warrants repeated readings and repeated reflection. I've preached on this actually a couple times already, I think, over the course of my ministry, and we're going to spend probably three to four weeks in this chapter just looking in detail at what it has to say to us and for us. So this morning, just the first seven verses, um, we are, as I said, going through this sermon series on Genesis. We just started in Genesis 1-1. We're moving through the book. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 God's creative actions, creating the whole universe, calling it very good, creating man and woman, Adam and Eve, placing them in a garden, making them in his image. He puts them in this place called paradise, called Eden, Everything is right. Adam and Eve are relating to each other perfectly. They're relating to their God perfectly. They're in perfect relationship with their creation. Everything is just right. And then it all goes wrong. It all malfunctions. And that's what we're reading about here in Genesis 3. So, if you're able to stand, please do so now. 
and we're going to read these first seven verses, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, Lord, we ask, please bless the preaching of your word, send your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts to understand the truth for us in this passage of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So whether you're a Christian or not, I mean, I think there's two things that pretty much everybody would agree on, and that is on the one hand, uh, the world is, is really a wonderful place in a lot of ways. It's a glorious and beautiful place. I mean, most of us like being alive in the world and enjoy God's creation. There's a sense in which we say the world is really a gorgeous place. And then at the same time, I think all of us would say, something's not right with the world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Something seems to have gone wrong. These are two things that we hold together. We don't say the world is all bad. We don't say the world is all good. It seems to be kind of a mixture. And it's the biblical account, it's Christianity that gives us an account of why that's true. Chapters 1 and 2, this is the wonderful, beautiful creation that we all value and love and appreciate, but now we get to chapter 3 and we see how it got broken. And so there's three things here that we're going to look at that the scriptures give us as an explanation for this problem that we have. So the first thing is this, it's the deception of the serpent. The serpent deceives. So if you look at verse 1, here's how it begins. Now the serpent. (laughs) And kind of interesting how this very significant figure is just kind of introduced, just kind of dropped in our lap. The serpent. (laughs) Not much explanation given for where the serpent came from or really much about what he is like. We do know that this serpent is Satan, is the devil, Uh, That's what our call to worship said. Revelation 12, verse 9 indicates the serpent is the devil. So we know that. And, you know, right now you might be thinking, devil, really? Do we believe that? Do we believe there's a devil? And rather than spend a lot of time on that this morning, I want to refer you to a sermon preached by by Pastor Brian back on May 31st. And he devoted some extended treatment to uh, this uh, question of, of the devil. So, Uh, that's available on our website. You can go back and and listen to that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. What we're going to think about, though, is not necessarily who Satan is or where he came from, but what Satan does. That's what we see in Genesis 3. What does Satan do? And we see that he comes in with, with the intent of wreaking havoc in this perfect state of affairs in 
Eden. He comes to bring death and destruction to what was otherwise a perfect state of affairs. But the question is, how does he do that? And I think it's super instructive for us living in 2020. What is Satan's strategy? I mean, if we think about this, there were several options, I suppose, to Satan about how he might introduce death and destruction. He could have, maybe a silly example, but he could have, you know, gotten a branch and hit, and hit Eve on the head with a branch and knocked her out, you know, and kind of taken over in a physical way that way, or he could have gathered together his, his demons and, and came with kind of a military conquest of Eden, surrounded Eden, Eden and invaded it and took it over in that way. I mean, I suppose that would have been an option for Satan if he wanted to bring death and destruction into this place, but that's not what he does. What does he do? What's his strategy? How does he decide is the best way to bring death, destruction, and to wreak havoc and to bring the world into sin and misery? How's he going to do that? And the answer is that he does it through deception. He does it through deception. He's crafty. That's what it says in verse 1. He's crafty. He brings with him to the garden, not a weapon. He brings an idea to Eve. He, he posits a suggestion to her. He enters into a conversation. He wants to debate. And through that, he brings confusion. That's his method. It, it's a battle of the minds. That's the way Satan chooses to do it. There's a guy named Richard Weaver. He wrote a book years ago called Ideas Have Consequences. The importance of ideas in our world, and he says this, it will be found that every attack upon religion or upon characteristic ideas inherited from religion, when its assumptions are laid bare, turns out to be an attack upon mind. This is what Satan wants to do, and we see this throughout the New Testament. I mean, it's repeated, actually, in many different places. John chapter 8, here's Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says this about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a lie and the father of lies. The father of deception. He wants to confuse. He wants to deceive. 2 Corinthians 11 similarly says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He appears like an angel. He appears pure, perfect. He appears trustworthy. And yet behind the angelic facade is the devil himself. Revelation chapter 12, which we just read, that great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Here's the description. He's the deceiver of the whole world. So this is Satan's method through the serpent. He's going to deceive. He's going to bring confusion. And in particular, he's bringing confusion, not necessarily about philosophy or politics, He's bringing confusion and deception about the Word of God. That's his primary goal. And you see that in verse 1. Second part of that verse, he says to the woman, Did God actually say? See that? Did God actually say? Calling into question what God had said. Now, this is a reference to uh, the command that... Uh, God had given to Adam in chapter 2, verse 17. Here's the command of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. So that's what Satan's referring to. So Satan knows that God said that to Adam. Remember, Eve was not created at that time, so we presume Adam told that then to Eve. That's how Eve knows. And Satan says, is that, though, really what God said? I mean, what's so interesting here to me is how simple that command is, and yet how Satan is still able to bring confusion about it. I mean, you can't imagine a simpler statement, right? I mean, God says, you see that tree over there? Yeah. Don't eat of it. Now, is that hard to understand? Is that a deep theological concept? Do you have to have a PhD to get that? Do you have to go to seminary to understand that? No. It's clear, it's simple, and yet Satan makes it confusing. Ah, the tree. What did he mean by the tree? Maybe he meant that as a metaphor. Uh, You know, God said that yesterday, but I don't know. It's a new day. Does he still mean that? I mean, would God really do that? Would God keep from me what I really want? I'd really love to eat from that tree. Would God be so harsh as to restrict me from what I want? Those are the kinds of doubts that begin to enter into our heads. This is Satan's strategy. And notice as this goes on, Satan kind of digs down, and more specifically what he wants to do is deceive Eve about the nature of sin. And so let's look at this. There's three things that he does. Here is Satan's tactic of deception. First of all, he questions the reality of sin. Again, verse 1. Did God really say that? God made this prohibition. Did God really say that? But notice how Satan already is kind of twisting things because he says at the end of verse 1, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, we know God didn't say it that way, did he? What he said was to Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden. (laughs) That there's just one that you can't eat from. But Satan comes and he's already twisting the words of God. Did God say, actually, you shall not eat of any tree? But what he's doing is beginning to cast doubt in Eve's mind. She's starting to get confused. She's starting to think maybe there's something here. She's starting to listen to the serpent. And we see this happening very often today in many respects, where certain teachings of the scriptures that have been accepted for the whole church, or the entire history of the church, you know, is Jesus really the only way? The Bible seems pretty clear about it, but people aren't so sure about that. Does hell really exist? I mean, as people have accepted that over 2,000 years, very clear, the Bible talks about it. You know, I don't know, maybe not. Is marriage really between a man and a woman? Is that the way God really wants it? Seems pretty clear, but yeah, I don't know. Today, I'm not so sure. Confusion particularly about the reality of sin. That's Satan's tactic. The second thing he does is he denies the danger of sin. Remember chapter 2, verse 17, God says, if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. But what does Satan say in verse 4? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A flat contradiction of what God had said. And again, today, we see how this shows itself so frequently. This is one of the most unpopular doctrines in the minds of the world and even in the church, this idea that God is a God of judgment, that there is judgment for our sins, that there is a place called hell. 
The typical response is God is a God of love. He's only a God of love. There is no wrath in God. There is no anger in God against sin. That's the beginning point of that kind of idea is right here where Satan is saying, look, you're not going to die if you eat that tree. God, God wouldn't be so harsh. God wouldn't be so unloving. Flatly denies the danger of sin. And then the third thing that Satan does is he suggests actually an advantage to sin. You see that in verse 5. God knows, the serpent says to Eve, that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. What the serpent is doing here is saying, not only is it not bad to sin, actually it's, it's good to sin. That this is going to be an advantage to you. You're going to be able to see things you never saw before. Your eyes are going to be open. You're actually going to be like God. This is going to elevate you. I mean, if you want your dreams fulfilled, if you want to truly find yourself, if you want to be happy in this life, here's what you do. Disobey God and do what you want. That's Satan's strategy. Suggesting an advantage to sin. Uh, there's a movie many years ago called The Usual Suspects, and uh, Kevin Spacey is one of the main characters, and he is quoted in the movie as saying that one of the greatest tricks of the devil is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And that is a pretty handy trick, pretty clever trick, that he has pulled. But even that is not what Satan is doing here in this passage. He's not trying to convince Eve that he doesn't exist. He wants Eve to doubt the word of God. He wants Eve confused. And right now, friends, there is a spiritual battle going on in this world for control of your mind. These spiritual forces are still at work. What Satan still wants to do today is to sow confusion in your mind about what is true versus what is false, about what is right versus what is wrong, about what God did say and what God didn't say. You are on a battlefield, friends, and I am too. We are in the midst of this war. We are soldiers in a battle. And the primary thing the enemies of the world of darkness are trying to do is get you to believe things that aren't true. So how do you deal with that? How do you battle that? Well, it's pretty clear in Ephesians 6, this is a classic New Testament passage that talks about spiritual warfare, and here's what, what Paul says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In all circumstances, see, schemes of the devil, he's still a schemer in the New Testament and today. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I mean, think of that. The evil one is throwing flaming darts at you <laughs> every day. If you knew somebody was out in your neighborhood throwing flaming darts at you, you would be on high alert, wouldn't you, all the time? And yet what Paul is saying is in the spiritual world, that's what's happening. Flaming darts are being thrown at you. So what Paul says is take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. There at the end of the passage. Those are our weapons. These are your weapons in this battle. The Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. If you're not in the Word and if you're not in prayer, you are susceptible to the deception of the world. 
You need to be in the Word diligently on a regular basis. You need to be in the Word prayerfully, asking God to reveal its truth to you. You need to be in the Word humbly with a teachable spirit, being willing for your opinions to change based on what the Scripture says. And you need to be in the Word in community in the midst of a local congregation like this one. But here's what Paul says. There's no magic trick to fighting the deception of the serpent. It's very simple. Be in the Word and be in prayer. So that's Satan's first step. He wants to deceive. But the second part of this, though, is that the woman then believes. <laughs> the woman believes. Now, the woman can't really get off the hook here by saying, well, the devil made me do it. You know, she, she is an intelligent being, a responsible moral agent. Uh, we can't excuse her for what has happened here. In fact, she is is in ideal circumstances, right? Remember, she's in the garden. She's in a place called Eden, which means paradise. She's in paradise. She's in a sinless place. And the command that has been given to Adam and to her through Adam is very simple, as I already said. It's very reasonable. It's just one tree. And it's very easy. It's not really that hard not to eat of a piece of fruit. That's not a difficult task. But as the serpent comes with his deception, the woman is, is mesmerized. She's just captured. And she starts weighing the pros and cons of what the devil is saying. And she finds in her heart welling up this desire to turn away from God and to turn toward what the serpent is promising. There's something going on in her heart, and this is kind of mysterious. How could this happen when she is sinless and in paradise, but somehow this different attitude begins to develop and she begins to want to believe different things. That's very important to understand. A guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, a British commentator years ago, people do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. At some level, our, our hearts kind of want to believe certain things and rather than our intellect always driving our heart, very often the desires of our heart drive our intellect to believe things that are false because that's what we want to be true. And that seems to be what's happening here with the woman. Her beliefs are beginning to change. She's been in the garden. She's believed God to be good and righteous and trustworthy. But now some things are changing. Here's the first change. Her beliefs about her circumstances are beginning to change. Remember God's grace puts Adam and Eve in the garden, tells Adam and Eve you can eat from any tree in the garden. And in verse 2, we see the woman knows that. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she knows that. that she has this wonderful provision given to her by God. But suddenly, that's not enough. Discontent begins to well up in her heart. And what she wants is the forbidden tree. <laughs> even though every other tree was sufficient for her. Look at verse six. Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Well, yeah, the tree was good for food, but so was every other tree. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Yeah, it was a beautiful tree, but so were all the other trees. Eve has all of this beautiful, bountiful provision from God. She should be content, but no. Now she wants what is forbidden. Her heart goes for what God has said she shouldn't have. 
And I think we all know, I mean, if you have children, I'm sure you know what that's like, watching your kids, just what you tell them no about is what they tend to want. We have a new puppy in our household now. Uh, he's like three months old. And, you know, we scatter all over the house these toys, you know, these balls and little stuffed monkeys and bears and ropes, and we've got them in our living room, we've got them in our kitchen, we've got them upstairs, got them everywhere. And we say to the dog, you, you know, you may chew on any of these toys, any of the toys in the house, they're free to you. But what does our dog want to do? He wants to go behind the dresser and chew on the electrical cord. He wants to go in our closet and take our shoe out and bring it out and chew it up. There's just a few things that are forbidden, but that's what he wants. He doesn't want everything that's been graciously given to him, and that's kind of the attitude that Eve is beginning to develop here. She's not content with what have been graciously given to her. She wants what is forbidden. She believes her circumstances are not satisfying anymore. But we also see her change in belief about herself So, the words of the serpent here in verse 5. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, that should strike you as a little bit odd. What, What is odd about that? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Particularly that phrase, you will be like God. What's odd about that phrase is this, Eve is like God. Remember, she was made in the image of God. Adam and Eve, both, they were made to resemble God. Again, that's something that she already possesses. But Satan says, no, you can be like God, but it seems like what what Satan is suggesting is that there might be just a little more to this. It's not that you'll be like God under God's authority, but perhaps you can steal God's authority from him. And that seems to be what Eve is is wanting. What she wants is moral autonomy. She wants now to decide for herself what is right and wrong. She does not want any longer to be dependent upon God. She doesn't want to submit to his authority. She wants moral independence. And so you can see that also in verse 6 where she saw that the tree was good. Well, God said don't eat from that tree. But Eve is like, no, I think that tree's good. I'm going to make a decision about what is good and bad. God, you say it's forbidden. I say it's good. And that's the the God-likeness here that it seems that Eve is going for, an independence from God. Um, The Supreme Court of our country, I'm quoting the Supreme Court two Sundays in a row here. I don't know why, but... Uh, Back in 1992, Planned Parenthood said this. Here's a a United States Supreme Court saying this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In other words, it's all up to you to decide what is right and wrong, who you are, who God is, what you want to do. You have full and complete and total moral autonomy. That's what the Supreme Court is saying. And I want you to see that that idea comes from the serpent. That's what the serpent is suggesting here to Eve. You can know what is right and wrong. It can be up to you. You can have full and complete moral autonomy. And so Eve begins to believe this about herself. Maybe she can be godlike, not just resembling God, but to be 
on the same plane as God and making decisions about what's right and wrong. And then the last thing we see here is that she begins to change her beliefs about God himself. And in particular, what she does is she starts doubting the goodness of God. God has been very good to her, but now she's not so sure. So look at verse 3. Very interesting little additional phrase here. Eve is speaking. She says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Wait a minute. Where did that come from? Neither shall you touch it? Go back to chapter 2, verse 17. God didn't say that. God didn't say you can touch the tree. Eve, somehow, kind of adds that in. Apparently, she's now beginning to see God as a little more harsh, a little more restrictive, a little more severe than he actually is. I think this is the first example of legalism in all the history of the church. (laughs) Here we have uh, an overly restrictive, man-made rule that is being added to what God has already said, intended to see God as restrictive and severe, lacking love, lacking grace. She's beginning to have doubts about whether God is good or not. That's kind of the serpent's suggestion. You know, if you eat this, your eyes are going to be opened, and the implication is that's not what God wants. God doesn't want you to advance. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled. So find it on your own. So... The woman begins to believe. She begins adopting these different beliefs about her circumstances. She's discontent about herself. Maybe she can be God. About God, maybe he's not kind. So much of our spiritual lives have to do with what we choose to believe about the world. What do you believe? What do you believe? What are your convictions? How much are your beliefs? rooted in what you want to be true as opposed to what the scriptures tell us is true. Is God real? Is God good? Is God trustworthy? Is God interested in you? Some of you might be convinced, God can't love me, God can't accept me, God cannot forgive me. He wouldn't do that, he wouldn't have me. I'm not good enough. This idea that God would not love you, would not atone for your sins, would not have you in his family, those are lies, friends. Those are lies. Are you believing them? What do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about yourself? Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 11. He's talking to, (laughs) this is right during the time of uh, Lazarus' death. And Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the most important claim for you to make a decision about as to whether you believe it or not. Do you believe this? There's two things here. It's what Satan is doing, and it's what we choose to believe about what God has said. The woman begins adopting beliefs that create a big problem, and that's our third point, which is that sin is conceived. The serpent deceives, the woman believes. Sin is conceived. What does Eve do as a result of this conversation that she's had with the serpent? We see it at the end of verse 6. It says that she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her 
wait a minute. Husband? The husband's there? Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) We haven't gotten any clue about this yet, but apparently Adam's been there the whole time while this conversation has been going on between the serpent and Eve. And he's doing nothing. He's not intervening. He's not exercising any kind of protection. Remember what God said to Adam when he put him in the garden? Keep this garden. In other words, protect it. In other words, keep uninvited serpents from coming into the garden. Adam didn't do that. He didn't protect the garden. He didn't protect his wife. Last week I made the point that Adam was in a position of authority over Eve. Part of that authority was to protect her. He's not doing that. He's being passive. He's refusing to intervene. And at the very end of verse 6, we see these two little words. He ate. He ate. And that's when sin was conceived. And that's when all of our problems started. He ate. Two results of this decision that Adam has made. One, there was an immediate result. First of all, it says in verse 7, their eyes were opened, right? Eyes were opened. Just like Satan said back in verse 5, your eyes are going to be opened. But their eyes were not opened in the way that they were thinking or expecting. Their eyes now are opened to behold their shame and their guilt. They see their nakedness. They see that they're unprotected. They see that they're vulnerable. They don't trust God now. They're ready to run from him and flee from him. They're alienated from him. That's what they see now. Half-truth from Satan. Your eyes will be opened. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they were opened, but not in the way that Adam and Eve expected. This is what happens when you believe the lies of the serpent. It never turns out like you think. So that's the immediate result, but then there's a long-term result of this decision, and it's this, that Adam's eating, that end of verse 6, he ate, affected not just him and his wife, but it affects you and me also, all the way down to October of 2020. People are affected by that decision that Adam made. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's through Adam, sin didn't come into the world through Eve eating. It came into the world through Adam eating, and death then came through sin, so death spread to all men, to all people, everybody without exception, because all sinned. When Adam did that, what happened is that he kind of brought sin into the bloodstream of the human race, you might say. We all got infected. You know, here we are in this time of pandemic and we're worried about getting infected. Some are infected and some aren't, but the doctrine of original sin says all of us as descendants of Adam have been infected by this sin. There's a guy named Arthur Ashe, maybe some of you remember him. He was a very famous tennis player back in the 1970s. And Arthur Ashe had heart surgery in 1983. In 1988, he began to get sick, and they discovered that he had contracted HIV during a blood transfusion back in 1983. And by 1993, Arthur Ashe had died. 
He contracted this disease through this blood transfusion. It entered into his system and it killed him. And what happened to Arthur Ashe physically is what has happened to all of us spiritually. That sin has been contracted by the human race. We've inherited this disease and it leads to spiritual and physical death. But here's the good news, friends. This sermon series is called The Gospel According to Genesis. Is there any gospel here? This is a dark chapter, a sad chapter, but there is good news, yes, because this chapter points forward to somebody who we call the second Adam. Another Adam has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And here's what we have to understand, friends, is that in order to get the solution to what's wrong with us right, we have to get the problem right. And that's what this passage is telling us, not just the solution, but the problem, the, tr- the accurate diagnosis so we can know what the proper treatment is. If you went to your doctor and said, doctor, I need some medication, the first thing that doctor is going to ask is, what's the problem? The doctor can't prescribe the proper treatment unless he or she knows what the problem is. And the scriptures are giving us the problem. This is what's wrong with the human race, but then it also gives us the, the solution. But the second Adam has come, and look what it says here in Philippians chapter 2. It says this, that Jesus was in the form of God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And when you read that, you ought to see a really striking contrast between what Jesus did and what Adam did. Adam, in the garden, a man, but not God. And in his pride, he grasps for divinity. He wants to be like God. And he disobeys by eating of the fruit. But then Jesus comes, a man who was God, but in his humility refuses to grasp the divinity that rightfully belonged to him and instead laid it aside, so to speak, so that he could be obedient to his father and that that obedient might take him all the way to a cross where he would lay down his life, shed his blood, to cover your sins and mine, to cure us from the disease that we've inherited from Adam. In other words, Jesus reversed what Adam did. Everything that Adam did to destroy, Jesus then did the opposite to bring life. And that's the gospel, friends. That's the gospel. You might think, you know, why do I inherit Adam's sin. I, I, didn't, I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't do anything to influence Adam. Why should I have to pay for that? Well, good question, except that the gospel works in the exact same way. The righteousness of God, the forgiveness of sins that you long for and want are also not something that you did anything to earn. Only Jesus and his work have accomplished what you need And by repenting, believing in him, giving yourself to him, you can begin to see what's wrong with you becoming right. You can begin to see transformation taking place. And we long for that day when Jesus comes again and all of us will be resurrected to gather around his throne 
and to be exactly as he intended us to be. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for being clear, open, direct with us about what our problem is. And we thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us in our problem, but that you have given us a great solution in the gospel. Thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to avoid deception. Help us to be people diligent in your word and prayer. And Father, may our hearts always rejoice in all that you, Jesus, have done for us as your people. In his name we pray.